Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, as well as the other option. And this series features a deep dive into the blue-covered DMGR, that is DMG reference series of books. What advice can we take from these and use in our current games? On this fifth day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me creative campaigning. This second edition source book was written by Tony Pryor, Tony Herring, Jonathan Tweet, and Norm Ritchie, and was published in 1993. DMGR 5 is the fifth in a series of nine DM-focused books written for second edition AD&D. You might recognize these as the blue faux leather softcover books that were on all the shelves on the D&D sections of your favorite bookstore, possibly toy store, in the 90s. I am Sam Dillon, one of your hosts, and I'm here with my my wonderful co-host, Brandis. How are you today, sir? I'm well, thank you. And what do you have to say about this book? <laughs> um, well, so it, it is interesting that this is one of the next places that they come back to the sort of more sincerely uh, DM-focused and advice-focused books. You know, the fifth book, um, the you've got your arms equipment guide that is pr- pretty, pretty fundamentally player focused. I don't care what they put on the cover; it's player focused. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a gear book. Your books are always player focused. Come on, right, right. It's fine. Well, and so yes, for the audience. So we we just finished covering DMGR one in the last few episodes and then dmgr2 is actually the castle guide which is dm focused but is really that's that's not unfair it's it's really mechanical right it's it's very much about castles what their parts are living in a castle how to structure a castle things like that and then there is the arms and equipment guide that you mentioned a minute ago and then there's the uh what is it monster mythology or something like that yeah that's right which is right so which is a lore book and Right. Sort of totally aside from advice. Sure. Whatever. And so so that's DMG's two DMGRs two, three, and four. And that's why we skipped right to five. Because those, while they are worthy books, and we will talk about them briefly towards the end of this series, um, they don't have the sort of meaty internal DM advice that we were looking for for this series. So we figured we would cover these in the order where we think they're going to be useful, but still retain some of the order of publication. And so that's that's where that's where we're at. And so now back to you. <laughs> right. So the book starts up in chapter one with alternate campaigns. And um, a lot of these don't feel as sort of ultra and unusual for D&D as hypothetically they felt at the time. Um, right. And so, you know, we get an example of campaigns in historical time periods where uh, the character uses flintlock pistols. Right. Well, that's, it's not, that's not that much of a reach, Sure, but the, the idea of, you know, pistols and gaslight. Well, like, sure, it is not your early to high medieval fantasy, but um, we we do sort of such a slipshod job of the social history of uh, early and medieval periods that a lot of the time we're kind of going very late medieval 
uh, or sort of your your Elizabethan um, mid Renaissance era mm-hmm. stuff anyway, I right. wouldn't worry about it. Um, yeah, but but, but so like the, I mean, this scene would be completely in place for my campaign right now. Is what I'm saying. Right. Right. And the thing is, like, so the the premise of this chapter is, if you want to of this section of the chapter anyway, is if you want to stick to a particular historical period, how might you set up your game? And so I I I appreciate what you're saying. You're right um, that a lot of these sort of um, designations that they're making aren't actually all that out of the ordinary for any game today. Right. But what I appreciate about what they did here is um, they give kind of a framework for if you're going to decide to do a historical period, here's here's how you might do it. They provide an overview of that period, and then they give class restrictions, right? So, uh, you know, for example, in the Bronze Age, rangers don't exist. That is completely wrongheaded. Right, but, but but I'm just okay. I, I'm just my point <laughs> yeah. here is the framework that they're providing, not right. whether or not the example is accurate, right? right? So, and then they provide information about how you might conceive of clerics in that time period, and and yep. wizards, and what spells are available, and what's the monetary system, um, and what monsters might you use that are appropriate for that. And so I appreciate the framework, and then they then they carry that framework on to the uh, that was the Bronze Age. Then they do the Iron Age, the Renaissance, what they're calling the Cavalier area, and then they and then they have a little uh, section at the end about other periods, really early periods of the Stone Age, and then really sort of later, more modern industrial periods. And so they and they don't give very big examples of those two, but the other three or four, they have nice examples of. I wish they would have picked something a little more different. <laughs> sure. Sure. Right. Maybe something they weren't also going to publish under a green cover. Just right. saying. Right. But but the thing is, like for me, I guess the idea of of this being, um, you know, they they sort of took the four time periods that, as you mentioned earlier, are already kind of mushed together in everyone's game right. already in the sort of traditional D and D settings. Yep. And then they split those out, and it's not. It's not really that helpful. And, and, and that's why I say the thing I appreciate about it is the actual structure that they give to it, the format they give to it. So that if I choose to do a different historical period or a different time or a different sort of setup, I now have a framework that I could make sure I cover all the bases, so to speak. Sure, at least in I, I agree with that. I, I have so many complaints about the way they actually implement it, but the framework they play with right. is yes. is fine. Um, yeah, the, yeah. My, my, my the, the fundamental approach of eliminating the, classes is just not what I want to do. You know. Well, and uh, and I'm actually okay with that, but I guess for me the thing is that these just aren't very meaty examples. You well, know, they're not, and it's because they're going to expand them into the green cover books. Right, right. But so, so as a as a sort of preview of what might be to come, they work just fine if that's how they were yeah. presented, but it's not how they're presented. No, I agree. And I agree. so, you know, so I have, a, I have a, a sort of issue with this book right from the start. I do. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to find the good in it. So I do appreciate the framework, but uh, to me, the examples are just not 
In fact, they're not all that different from things presented in the Dungeon Master's Guide, which they're is really not. Which is part of the problem for me. Like it, it's sort of like an yep. unnecessary chapter. They could have provided the framework in like three right. pages and not have wasted twenty pages on. Well, and so much of this is going to get recapitulated also in your player's option combat and tactics mm-hmm. material, right? Because right. your call that has weapon tables for. Sure. Uh, other times and regions sure Um, sure well and even the dmg has has things split up so that you if you wanted to you know take you know you know it even mentions in the bronze and 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 iron age sections you know in the dmg it tells you what might be considered the ancient weapons that you would use for this time period versus right so you we don't even have to wait for those players options books to come out <laughs> it's already done for us in the dmg yep. already yep. um which also which is you know i i sort of skirt the line here uh because for me it's sort of you know i i wonder if my bias is because now it's been you know 28 years or whatever since this was published and so i already can see all of this. I I don't remember though, and here's where I say I wonder if it's my bias. But I do not remember when this book was published. I do not remember reading it and thinking, "Wow, that's really helpful." Like this, this is this is great. This is great yeah. information. Like I thought with DMGR one, like this well, this well, was so, not helpful to me by the time I read it in 1993. Well, so think about the fundamental of what's happening with so many of these rules. There are so many extra rules that are all of the format. This is mostly bad for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Like all the stuff with clerics in the Bronze Age mm-hmm. is, no, your spell might not work. Yeah. It's not right. really ever of a, a form of, uh, you get to be extra cool. It's all of the form. Here's why you're a little bit less cool than if you were just playing regular mm-hmm. D&D. Right. It is all pushing you away from trying this thing out it is just the worst in that regard right it, like well for I, example i really like, actively dislike it for that let, and, let me and get, like the stuff about the about guns in the um the renaissance era is an even worse offender there right well let, let me give you an example that i think everybody can identify with for for the bronze age and, and it does this for the iron age and for the other ones as well it says for rogues Here's the change in the in the rogue class. Locks, yep. as we know them, do not exist in the classical world. Therefore, the lock picking ability is eliminated. Yep. Well, but then you don't give any um, advice to the DM about okay, so don't put locks in your freaking dungeons, right? Don't put locks in your in in the buildings of your you know of your adventure because your rogues don't have the ability to pick the lock, and neither does anybody else, right? Yep. So it's it right off the bat it sort of hits a, a you know a problem um not right. because not be but for a different reason as you're having a problem I actually don't have a problem taking away powers or abilities from from PCs if it makes sense I'm totally fine with that the problem is that they sort of do it in a in a ham-fisted way they take these things away or they give problematic outcomes like what you're talking about with the clerics where there's this uh, and I think with the wizards too right there's this sort of um additive a number of times, if the more you cast spells, the more it's going to be likely that they fail on you. Right. And well, and and with wizards, 
It's just, hey, make sure the campaign ends by a certain point or you'll stop getting cool stuff. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. dealing with demi-human fifth, level fifth limits. level spells and above don't exist or something, right? Uh, like Seventh, yeah. but... Seventh, like, yeah. So, the, the point is, right. like, here, as with demi-human level limits, you've given the player an incentive to make sure the campaign stops. Right. Because you've said you have no more cool stuff coming. Right. That's it. Yeah. Peace. And and I understand that I understand that as a problem. I, I'm just saying, for me, from my perspective, I don't actually have a problem just with the basic statement of some classes don't work exactly the same, or there are consequences for certain things, or we're going to take some abilities away. I don't have a problem with that in general, right? Because I have no problems restricting classes and abilities and all that stuff. But the problem is, if that's all you're doing, right? Then what's the point? Right. right. See, there has to be a payoff for that, right? Yes, there has to exactly. Be, there has to be a, a that's a, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's it's a tit right. for tat kind of thing, right? You don't just take a bunch of abilities away and then not offer something cool in return. Right. right? If this were a transformation of gameplay where right. hey, you know, your spells are unliable unreliable, but like you get the divine intervention ability. Imagine we're using fifth ed, go with me here. Right, uh, right. at at third level, mm-hmm. and it works twice as often as you know standard D and D, like or oh, even okay, that's a mess, but okay, right, right? Or even okay, well, there's this weird percentage thing you have to keep adding up what the chances are that your spell will fail. But on the other end of the axis, on the other end of the that through line, on the other side, there's also that same percentage chance, but on the upper end, that the spell will be three times as powerful. Right, or not cost you a slot today. Or, or, or not right, or for some reason it, it actually works better in exactly. whatever way better it means to you, right? Yeah, no, we're on the same page here. Yeah. For sure. And and that's and that's the problem is that these examples do not do that at all. They they simply say if you're gonna play in this time period, that stuff won't work because that, that doesn't work for the time period. So do this. Yep. But it doesn't give a replacement cool factor right correct and, and that's going to continue through all the other periods right like um it's cool that you have damage that can explode on a lot of the firearms mm-hmm. so like you, you if you roll such and such number on the damage die you get to roll again and add it that's that's great it's just they have this misfire chance right. and this is where the idea of hey guns should have a misfire chance on a one or a one and two and mm-hmm. whatever like got stuck in the the zeitgeist mm-hmm. and it is horrible especially <laughs> in fifth ed because right. fighters get more and more attacks per round without doing more damage per shot so they're just more and more likely to like suddenly lose a turn right but, I, I hate misfire rules. I think they're a bad idea. We can yeah. move on. Um, so, well, and and the other thing <laughs> that they do is they have the fouling rules, right? Where so the right. misfire rules, aside from da- possibly damaging you, which they might not do, but aside from that, oh well, but now they have to be to unfoul the gun. It's going to take you six turns. Yep. You might as well throw that thing on the ground and pull your dagger out. That's exactly what I just told you to do. Right. Yes, that's exactly what what the what the what that leads to, and yep. so and that's fine, 
Look, that's totally fine if that's how you if you're if you, in your setting firearms are rare and dangerous and all that that's cool. I appreciate that. I love it. It's great. Black powder is really rare, doesn't really happen a lot, whatever whatever. But recognize what you're doing to that PC. If you oh, yeah. let if you let that player make a character who's going to specialize in gunslinging and like one out of six times their gun is going to backfire and it's not going to be useful for another hour. They got to take a short rest in order to, to uh-huh. use that gun again. Like you're hobbling that you're hobbling them. So that's fine. If that's how you want to do it and you provide them with that sort of gunslinging ability as a bonus, and then they have other things to do once their right. gun fouls fine. Well, right. like this, ju- this just all amounts to, you know, you could be using a bow instead. Right. Yeah. It'd be better which, in every way. Which in no sure, case damage would explode, yeah. but right. it it smooths out over time. Right. So you're just better off using the thing that is not the centerpiece of this era. Yeah. It is exactly wrong-headed design. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's move on to single yeah. class campaigns because yeah. we could dunk on this all day. Right, right. Um, well, and like I said, you know, I just want to make be clear. Like, I have no problem with restrictions. I actually appreciate restrictions. I think that limits limits can bolster creativity and can bolster a campaign. No problem. I, that's not what my where my complaint stems from, and sure. I don't think it's what Brandis is saying either. Right. right. This is no. this is about when you only take things away, but this book isn't then providing yeah. you with a way to say and that's okay because here's the other cool stuff that happens yeah this is all stick and no carrot right yeah that's the deal yeah that's bad don't do that yeah um especially so, if you're going to have some classes where you take away nothing at all and everything's right. just yeah, yeah. everything's fine oh yeah these work the same as always what <laughs> come on so so single cast campaigns it's weird to see this introduced as Hey, we had this cool new idea because in literally four years earlier, 1989, Complete Fighters Handbook, they explore this idea in depth. And they're going to do that again in Complete Priest, Complete uh, Thief, Complete. Well, and and that's the thing. What's funny about this is it even says many AD&D books and articles mention single class campaigns. Right. But few details have been discussed um, <laughs> on Ka-choo. running a campaign. But yeah. here's the thing. This actually isn't discussing how to run that campaign either. <laughs> right? I mean, it's at least talking about some of the considerations. But, Maybe. Yeah, sure. But um, what like the most interesting part of it uh, to me is the idea that it would your single class campaign would be a cutscene or cold open episode in an otherwise standard campaign if you look at keeping it balanced mm-hmm. on page 11 yeah um, they have the idea of hey so something's happening at this fortress uh while the you know main pcs are off dealing with something you could run a session or two that is just interactions at the fortress and everyone's playing a fighter for that Right, and that's right. cool. It's yeah. not typical. Um, it's also I, I not a campaign. It, no, that's true. It's like a one shot or a, or a two or three shot arc, right? It's not, right, and that's why I say like this doesn't actually as much as this touts like oh we're going to tell you how to, but it doesn't really. It, it basically right. says here's how to substitute a single class set of adventures 
right. into your and, campaign. Uh, and it amounts to you can have a B team. And there's right. nothing wrong exactly. with that, but yeah. it isn't the, the premise. Sure. Right. right. Um, and so they go through this for, for all the classes. Uh, you know, in all fairness, I did a similar article in Tribality years and mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, all the different classes in a single class campaign. Right. Um, spoiler, they're all fine except for Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Sorcerer gets really strange just trying to think of a reason the characters would even be pulled together by their class. But we did a whole uh, episode on why even our sorcerers, so I'll skip right. it. Yeah. Well, um, so here's here's my problem is that they start out with fighters, okay? And fighters, sure. in this case, get the biggest section, which is fine. I don't have anything against fighters, except they're the most obvious easy one. So they right. get the most space on here, and then paladins get three paragraphs, rangers get one paragraph, wizards get a couple of paragraphs. You know what I mean? And in the, well, in right. the fighter they, section, they also don't think through the ranger one at all. Right. Rangers well, are it, loners. The hell they are. Well, and the, and then like in the fighter one, they do this whole thing, and then it has this little subheading for adventure ideas and has all these things. And then in none of the other cases does it do that for you. Like the right. wizard one mentions what would be, you know, low level for challenging for low level wizards versus a higher level, et cetera. But it doesn't, it's not actually providing me with the campaign ideas that I want. It's, it's right. It, here's my issue with it. It's not that it's poorly written. It's, it's written fine. It does have some information. And I suppose if I was a new DM and I didn't think about these considerations, this would be good information. But the problem is that when I see the cover of this book, Creative Campaigning, I want it. Now, this is the fifth in the reference line. Okay. I want this thing to tell me how to create that campaign in a very creative manner. I don't need it to tell me, well, if all fighter group is really good at melee combat and right. all wizard group, if they're low levels, you better be careful because they've got low hit dice. No, Sherlock. I already yeah, know those yeah. things. It, it, it does seem to have largely been written by Captain Obvious. I <laughs> I would agree with yes. that. Um, like the, the all wizard campaign, I don't often say, "Hey, you should run, you should use a different game for that." Here, I might make an exception. Like, yeah. no, there are whole tabletop games that mm-hmm. are purpose built to this. You should be playing them. It, doing this in D anD D is feasible, but yeah. boy, did you borrow a lot of trouble getting there. Right, um, and also. Uh, Second edition is one of the least friendly editions to do this with. Fifth edition, pretty much fine. Thank you, subclasses. You can fit all these classes into different party roles. Right. Um, And Strixhaven, available uh, tomorrow. I'm recording this on December 6th. You can tell. Sorry, (laughs) I forgot that you're listening to this later. Yeah, it's all right. Because by then it's already out. I just went timey-wimey. All right. Yeah. so Strixhaven is here for this with, you know, you probably are playing less than the full uh, assortment of classes, but still more than one class. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily have party of just wizards. Anyway, um, after that, we move in. Oh, and everyone's had the idea of an all bards campaign. Everyone and their brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, this section being all... Uh, 
Bards operate alone. Guys, no, it's called a band. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have no idea. Uh, fine. Yeah. Well, you can tell then, these are nerds don't listen to music. Yeah. It kills me. <laughs> you know, even Rush has more than one musician, right? We go over that. And then, and then, uh, I mean, and then it's tell it's it's as if this is a great revelation. A single player campaign is a good possibility for a bard, as is a campaign in which the PCs are members of a wandering theatrical troupe, entertaining the populace while engaging in freelance roguery and espionage. Really, also, like that's literally a single bard campaign. That sounds right. like hell to me in second ed. But I'm just saying that's literally all it says about yeah. the bard as a single. It, does, it There's nothing else, right? So the right. fighter got like five paragraphs of really Captain Obvious stuff. And the bard, where it maybe not is so ca- – I mean, the only thing they tell you is the Captain Obvious stuff about the bard. Then they right. don't give any other possible creative ideas, well, right? Honestly, they assume no one wants to do that. And yeah, well, they, they assume incorrectly because that's the idea everyone's had. But you know, if you want an all thief campaign um, that is urban and dealing with a bunch of thieves mm-hmm. guilds, uh, yeah. that actually works fine in D anD. d But also, you could just go to Blades of the Dark as your idea. Of mine, I do recommend right. it. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so single race campaigns. <laughs> um, so I, I have had this dream for a long time of uh, running the part of the dust to dust setting where humans haven't been created yet. It's just the, the elves, the firstborn mm-hmm. uh, and the things they deal with, because I love the idea of getting to completely dig into uh, what that looks like culturally and what the like, different cultures of the firstborn would have been at that time mm-hmm. that, you know, those cultures had been dead for 10,000 years by the time humans were created. So we don't even hear about them. It just would be a cool thing to me. So I do like this idea in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so for me, this section has a similar problem to the last section. Mm-hmm. And that is that it gives only the most obvious, right? This is This is definitely a Captain Obvious chapter for me. Um, but the, I, and I guess my complaint, you know, I'm okay with the obvious. I think that stating the obvious is not, it gets a bad rap. Okay. Especially if someone's a new DM, then what's obvious to you is different for each person. Right. So I'm not actually ripping on this because it's a captain obvious chapter. My problem is that this book purports to be a creative campaigning rule supplement for dungeon masters. And presumably you have already read the dungeon master's guide and you have at least a little bit of experience under your belt because you're buying this because you're going to create your own campaign. Okay. And therefore you should be keeping the captain obvious stuff to a minimum. It can still be in there. I don't have a problem with that. And then you should actually highlight the things that might, might be, you know, triggers to get somebody's creative juices flowing. And that this is still just Captain Obvious stuff. I I I I really want something that is going to cause me to say, oh, an all dwarf campaign. Why would that be really awesome? Why would it be really awesome? There's really no why in here. And there's really nothing to tell me that I should 
consider doing it. And that if I if I decide I want a, a single race campaign or a single species campaign, or I want to focus on a particular species for part of my campaign arc, why it should be dwarves. It yeah. really it really doesn't give me any of that. It doesn't give me well, any reason why. Sure. And this is the wrong book for that. And it's very unfortunate they even used the page space for it. The complete book of dwarves is going to sell that and sell it hard and i love that about the complete book of dwarves which we're not reviewing today so i'll stop but right sure like, but here's they do here's so my much thing, stronger of a job there than this book could ever do well and because- and that's but here's the thing that's okay except they spend one two three four five six paragraphs telling me about a single species campaign with all dwarfs and they give me nothing like give me just a tiny bit. I don't I don't need an entire 96 page book like the complete book of dwarves yet to sure. do that. I just need something to tell me why it would be a great idea and this isn't it. Yeah. Um the the elf entry is at least a pitch I could buy by itself. Mm-hmm. Right? Um yeah. all elven worlds are places of great magic and peril. Well, I that doesn't tell me a lot but you know, okay. You start. You're, mm-hmm. tr- you're trying to put some energy in it, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like what what really gets me is that the uh, you know, ancient past narrative of settings often reads more like any one of these, right? Right. Um, yeah. The the Crown Wars and Forgotten Realms really spring to mind here for me, mm-hmm. uh, as does all the you know lore of dwarves um but what can i tell you i love the silmarillion so <laughs> yeah yeah I, like this was the right I, like i am pre-pitched for this we're mm-hmm. good we're good um right but see so i guess here's the thing right so, like they could have summed up everything i needed with have you read the silmarillion cool i guess you're set <laughs> Right. So the thing is, so you're predisposed to enjoying an all elf campaign. And so the thing is, what they've written here for you is decent. I'm actually predisposed. It doesn't have a lot of new information. Right, right. But I'm I'm predisposed for an all dwarf campaign. I love dwarves. Yeah, I love dwarves too. And I I like the old gruff mountaineering dwarf thing, right? Um, yep. And th- and that's fine and everything. And it's okay if you don't like that. I don't that there's no requirement. But the thing is that the, but these but but what's here doesn't expand on that for me. If I already liked the idea, this is just saying yeah, go for it. But we're not helping yeah. you do that. Yeah. Well, so like this is a place where I am way out by myself in terms of movie tastes. Um, but I absolutely love Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies that so many people dislike because they get to dig into dwarf culture and like emotions and interactions so much more deeply than Lord of the Rings can. Now, I also mm-hmm. love Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, but I love them for something different. Right. Um, but the fact that we have all of these dwarves that need personal characterization and you have, you know, um, Balin, a toy maker, uh, Dwalin, the fiercest warrior guy of the whole bunch, right? Like, right. I love how different they are. And I love the emotional tenor in a lot of what they say. It mm-hmm. just really, really speaks to me. Also, once they actually get to 
the Lonely Mountain, and you have you see them looking back at their home. That that is really perfect to me. Uh, so that's your all dwarves campaign. Oh wait, we needed a burglar. <laughs> right, right. And I love that. And to to be fair, because let's face it, Gandalf is gonna uh, f off to the pub as often as possible. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and and to be fair, okay, t- to be fair, um, this was written before those movies came out. Okay, uh, but it wasn't written before the Silmarillion. And it wasn't written before much of literally the Hobbit. Right. So like, <laughs> this is, you know, yeah, I, I feel like I'm really bagging on this first chapter. Um, there are good parts of it. I, I don't, I don't want the audience to think that, you know, that, that we've suddenly swung to the, to the side where this is a, sure. you know, a well, book that like, could, it has no value. It does have value. It has a little well, bit of well, value. Like we're, we're wanting something more than an overview and this chapter is not trying to provide anything more than an overview. Like we aren't the target audience and we kind of need to say that up front. Yeah. Uh, the thing is I wasn't the target audience in 1993 either. And I think that's what my problem is. Well, no, I mean, you, you'd been running D and D since 1948. Mm-hmm. Uh, so years before it was made. Yes. Uh, and before which is fact, quite, you were that's born, quite the feat, is, right? Yeah, yes. Oh, I, I'm impressed with you for it. Locks for sure. did not even exist, so my roguelike lock picking abilities that's, just didn't make any difference. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, um, and so like, even by then, an overview was not what you needed, but they are always trying to hook new people and introduce them to ideas that have been part of the conversation since. I'll call it 1974, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we're recapitulating a lot of that. Uh, they, I don't remember where they were in the release of the red books or brown books. Everyone, I think they're red. Everyone else says they're brown. My like mm-hmm. color vision might be slightly skewed. Whatever. Who knows? <laughs> um, not important right now. My point is, uh, this is the DM facing conversation about that. And they, you're, you're right, they don't hit it hard enough, but there is nominally DM facing conversation in the complete race books. Um, so after this, we get to alternate lands and people, uh, f- starting with the distant, foreign, not at all European, uh, Celtic <laughs> Ireland. Uh huh. Yes. I have questions. Starting yeah. with this is a green book. Why did you recover it here? But like, Part of this book just needs to admit that it's um, a pitch book for buying all of the the, uh, the other and the other books. supplements that come out. It's, yeah, it, it's marketing, folks. It's marketing, right? Um, because <laughs> like, they they go as far as including character stats for Kukulin and uh, Finn McCool and Mav of Connaught and so on, mm-hmm. and that's great. But man. There's more depth on Celtic Ireland than any other idea so far, and that seems weird. Right. But finally, we actually leave Europe for a minute to get to Mesopotamia. <laughs> um, and this is your, your Gilgamesh campaign. Okay, mm-hmm. sure. Um, and then the country of Africa. Yeah. Yep. Pause for droll look at camera. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, mm. It's fine. Like, 
there's good intent here. I don't, I, I'm not going to enough depth to actually uh, offer any judgment on it. Um, um, uh, here's, here's my judgment. I, I will, I will read the second paragraph in this section and I will let you come to your own conclusions about how I feel about it. It says Africa is a vast continent with great bands of desert, rich grassy veltlands and fertile green jungles. Each region has its own separate cultural traditions. All are of roughly bronze age level. Use the rules for the bronze age from the campaigns and historical time period section. Yeah. There's some yikes there. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit, little bit of yikes. Um, should possibly nail down whether we're talking, um, you know, uh, Roman era Africa, um, post-Muslim conquest, uh, Northern Africa, just, you know, a lot of options. Yeah. Not, not my deal. Um, I'm just saying I I would, I mean, I, I love that, um, Quinn Murphy's gotten to work with uh, Paizo on mm-hmm. a, a very Africa-based um, expansion for uh, Galarian. I really enjoyed what I got to contribute to the Southlands Players Guide for Cobalt Press. Um, mm-hmm. But presenting it as uh, the place your characters are already from with the right kinds of problems to solve rather than seeing it as an outsider is everything. And uh, I, I know I don't have that learning. Right. 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 And most of us do not. Right. Right. Like I, I can only really speak for myself, but I will say that at, in 1993, definitely I did not. Right. Nowadays, and I have more than than I had before. I'm still not in any way, shape, or form qualified to write about. Partly because I haven't studied it. Partly because I'm I'm not from that area. I don't. I'm not steeped in that culture, so it's not in my wheelhouse. And I recognize right. that. Um, but <laughs> I'm not writing a book for publication for the world's most popular role-playing game, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, so after Africa, we get to Lost Worlds, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty much imagining your uh, high pulp, like, oh, there are still dinosaurs in this one valley, kind of Lost World or Lost Continent. Um, I, I mentioned uh, uh, Atlas's Plangea, uh setting that has just finished its Kickstarter um, the other night. And so this is very much in that same space, just, you know, this is the the high level overview of some ideas, um, but they're staying light enough here. They're not even getting into, Hey, here are some classes you should cut out or whatever, which is their approach for the things. So the, 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 level of depth and discussion has shifted from um, here's how you would play through this to a very, very like 10,000 foot view. Yeah. Um, here's the thing though. I actually appreciate this section 
Sure. Because it splits lost worlds into three, three or four basic types, right? The, That's the, fair. Yeah. the hidden area. And then it talks about what it would take for a hidden area to actually exist in, in a place, right? There has to be a barrier, the reason why it hasn't been discovered yet, things like that. And, and I think they give a decent overview of that. And then it can be a lost continent, right? Something that's the basically like the new world, but it has just been discovered. And then there's the idea of hollow worlds. So I appreciate what what's in this section in terms of, this is one of those that, even with its, you know, 50,000 foot view, it's still actually giving ideas. That's fair. For how to do it, which is, which is more than I can say for the, the initial portions of this, um, you know, and now granted the Celtic Ireland section gives ideas and the NPC stats and the Mesopotamia and Africa sections. They, they try They're trying to do that. They get into a little more detail, but if we, if we zoom back out now to the sort of, overview again these this lost world idea gets a much better overview than any of the single race single class suggestions that they give previously i'll say that yep the ultimate lost word world is truly an entire world so just a new setting <laughs> yes yes mm-hmm. right yeah mm-hmm. but you know a, a setting where there are two planets that know about each other and you have you know, full interplanetary travel, but mm-hmm. it's still a you know, medieval to Renaissance tech axiom yeah. would be a really neat idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty doable. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to call out uh, a really good sort of part of this. There, there is some good advice sprinkled within some of these sections. Okay. I, I've cool. been lambasting this book so far, but let me, let me point out something that's good. It basically makes the point here in, in the end of the hollow world section, it makes the point that, um, you know, if, if, if you're doing a hollow world, for example, and, and the basic physics of how that has to work isn't really to your taste and you get tired of, having to explain every single sort of deviation from basic physics or typical, you know, if you can't give a double talk explanation or you're not comfortable just giving the, well, it's magic kind of explanation, then, you know, uh, it points out, it says the function of an AD and D campaign is to provide fun and entertainment, not to get bogged down in meaningless scientific jargon. And so, it, it, and it's making the point that, you know, don't choose to make your setting this way. Don't choose to put your campaign here if you are a person who is going to get really bored telling the players every time there's something different, what the explanation of how come the physics is different or it just saying it's magical. If, if that bothers you, you're not going to have fun with this. And so, you, you need to be clear about what your own limits are as a DM in terms of how you're putting forth this setting for the players. And I think that is a very valid piece of advice, especially in a sort of lost continent, lost world kind of situation. If you love the idea of dinosaurs and pterodactyls and all that, but you can't explain how come the pterodactyls just didn't fly over the high mountains, you know, and go into the regular world and how come you never see them any other place if that bugs you, 
then you probably shouldn't be doing that sort of lost valley thing with mountains being the barrier sure. right and sure. so it makes that point and i think that's a point well taken and that's worthy of that entire section so there is good right. stuff in here it's that's just, fair you have to pull it out <laughs> Uh, so creating another world uh, is there's actually more to what's here than uh, you might think. It's trying to really talk about um, some of your like sword and planet science fantasy kind mm-hmm. of play with alien overlords uh, than degenerate remnants that sounds exactly like um, Jack Vance's dying earth um, Mm -hmm. along with decadent civilization. Um, The noble civilization and noble savages. Well, we're back into some problematic territory, but let's, let's keep going. Um, And again, though, these are like 50,000 foot views. They're just giving very simple, simplistic kind of overviews of how such a, such a society would work probably in a fantasy world. Um, there are some things that aren't all that great in here, but, um, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you want to tell me that uh, maybe more campaigns should have something like Migo uh, pulling some strings, strings in the background, that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's, that's fine. Sure. Sure. Um, I think it's, I think it's, fine to make the distinctions they're making uh, you know just to be clear you know that the, inha- the inhabitants that they're talking about they split them into different groups the alien overlords degenerate remnants decadent civilizations noble civilizations and noble savages like this is those are kind of very tropey groups and right. so it kind of just gives the the 50,000 foot overview of here's how that tropey society would operate and so that's what you should be thinking about if you put that sort of society in your setting um what i wish it had was you know here's some things to think about right like and some questions about you know how does this fit in with the other societies around it and you know are your pcs all from this society or are they coming into this like those sorts of questions would really enhance this section Um, and then we continue with a, an example of putting some of this into, into use, mm-hmm. um, with the lost world of Chanak. Um, this is again, some very, like, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs sword and planet mm-hmm. kind of content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. Like if anything, it's a surprise that. Uh, there hasn't been more uh, official D&D content that just takes up the sword and planet baton and runs with it as hard as it can go. Um, Mm -hmm. That is Mm -hmm. available in some of the settings, but I think, I think I'd expect to see more of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if it's, if there are problematic elements now, well, Y'all were writing in the nineties when you get away with literally anything. So right, right, right. What? Um, um, and, and you can play Spelljammer, Sword and Planet, but it's a bit different. Yeah, it's it's yeah. So you know, I actually appreciate the section. I'm I'm not super enamored with the example, right? With the, sure. with the actual 
you know, the, the, the technical aspects of the example are eh, whatever they're fine. They're not, there's nothing wrong with them, but they're fine. Um, I appreciate though, the way that, again, it's a format thing, right? It's showing you, okay, I'm taking all that stuff that we talked about just in the previous five, six pages, and now I'm going to put it to use and I'm going to show you how I would generate a setting based on that stuff I just told you about, right? Whereas, you know, and I've said, you know, that part of the part of my issue with the previous portions of this chapter is it doesn't give enough questions and food for thought and things to spur your creativity while you're creating your own thing based on this this advice. And here, though, it does, right? Here is, okay, here's a worked example. And as a teacher, yep. worked examples are a wonderful teaching tool. And I appreciate how much of a wonderful teaching tool they are. Some people don't, and that's fine. And, and some people there are, are not really don't have a proclivity for these, and that's fine too. But in terms of a worked example, this is not bad. And it tells you about how to format the information as you're creating it. And at the same time, it's not a 300-page setting book, right? It's just a few, you know, four or five pages at a relatively very readable font. Again, just like DMGR1, this has really large font, very good obvious section headings. And um, and so its its layout is, is very nice and very easily readable. And so this sort of gives a few paragraphs about each kind of major idea. And, the, and it talks about all of the important things that it has mentioned in the previous several pages. And so I appreciate what they've done with 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 this information and how they they even throw in at the end you know some you know a, a, a surprise thing about this particular setting about you know well here's the twist is that you know this is what's actually happening in this setting and so it adds some interest to it so I appreciate their you know their their actual worked example I, I really think it, they did a good job there yeah I agree with that um, also I like the the getting there that. Uh sort of mm-hmm. directly engages with uh, the uh, portal fantasy sort of isekai uh, idea. Yep. Uh, yep. Another option is to take characters from 20th century Earth and place them in Janak. That's that's basically the John Carter of Mars pitch, yep. you know, right. yep. just a different century. Yep, absolutely. And and this has a very John Carter feel to it. And, and in fairness, uh Flash Gordon's going to save us all, right? Uh, of course, yes, yes, of course, yes. <laughs> Which brings us to the last two pages of the chapter. This is, yep. by the way, the longest chapter in the book. So uh, I know we're spending what seems like probably a long time on it, but that's because it's the the longest, most varied chapter. So there's a lot of things to talk about individually in it. Um, and the uh, so the, the last sort of page is about just sort of other ideas like having the players as PCs, right? Turning your player into, right? Translating a person's skills in the real world into their PC and what problems that might cause or how to adjudicate those things. PCs as animals, right? Are you going to play a Redwall campaign where everyone is a, a mouse or a badger or a whatever? Um, PCs as kids, so very young, young-aged PCs in whatever setting you're in. Um, and then, of course, the 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 idea of use your imagination, <laughs> of course, yeah. uh, and that rounds out the final portion of the chapter. Yep. Um, 
I do kind of love how many of the like sort of micro pitches in here have become their own tabletop games over the years. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Watership Down has mm-hmm. at least three different tabletop games intended to model it. Yeah. Um, there, there's probably no upper limit to the number that have been created for Redwall, but Mouse Guard is the most famous, I would say. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so on, right? Uh, PCs as kids—that's that's your uh, right. tales from the loop, right? Yeah, and kids on uh, bikes, and kids on bikes, right? Bubblegum shoe, right? Yep, absolutely. I mean, all, all of those are. Um, yeah, just uh, oh, uh, monster hearts. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. right? yep, yep. Um, just uh, so many of these ideas. Like, I don't think they looked at this book and had that idea. I think they were just you know, drinking of the same well. Right. They're, they're sort of natural ideas about role-playing that end up getting developed into a whole game. Um, yeah. I mean, and so uh, there are some nuggets in this chapter that are worthy of the name of the book, creative campaigning, yeah. right? There, there are some, not as many as I would like in a, in a 40 page chapter. Okay. Sure. But but there are some. So I don't want to say this is whole cloth, throw this chapter out. I would not say that. Um, but uh, I, I would probably say it's maybe not the most helpful chapter to me in terms of the book speaking to me. So That's fair. Um, so that brings us to chapter two. The, there's a discussion of sort of the master outline um, and just it's talking about how to structure story uh, and how to design original adventures. Uh, And then there's going to be some fairly in-depth examples of that. Um, So what what do you see here, Sam? Well, so it, it it gives some, it gives a couple of really in-depth examples. Then it gives sort of these little one or two paragraph like idea things. Um, So here's my thing about this. I love a good outline. Right. And I and I think that this is an outline is a very good tool because even if you don't follow the outline exactly the way it is, it gives you a framework with which to organize your thoughts. And and I feel like one of the big problems that people have, just people in general as human beings, is even an organized person, if you have a lot of ideas and a and a lot of different disparate kinds of thoughts around a particular campaign or set of adventures, sometimes it is difficult to get those ideas down on paper and organize them in a way that's useful. That is that is a skill, and it's not a skill that everyone has, even someone who's been DMing for a very long time. And so I appreciate the fact that there is a, a master outline presented, and then it tells you what the different sections of the outline are. Now, I myself might choose to make a slightly different outline, but I think that as a sort of first go at it and the way that it's described and presented is a really great tool for a person to start using and then develop their own sort of style through that, right? And then eventually you'll end up with an outline that probably doesn't look anything like what they've presented here because of everybody's different, right? Um, yep. But I appreciate that they're giving 
you know, because it's not just, oh, here's an outline and here's an example. It's giving an outline and it's saying, okay, this section of the outline, it wants you to provide this information. And in this section of the outline, it wants you to provide this other information. And here's a thing to think about when you're doing this and creating this outline. And so I appreciate that. I think it's actually a well done example, even if I find the outline to be somewhat wanting. Sure. Sure. Um, and it even, you know, it, it even, it, it talks about, you know, story structure and, you know, developing a story and, and the climax of the story and what a denouement yeah. is and, and, and that sort of thing. And when to give reward, you know, it's, it's only a couple of pages. Don't get me wrong. It's not an entire textbook worth of, of information, but it, it's a decent sort of overview. Again, this book is all about the overview and then the example. Okay. And it's, yeah. a, dec- it's a decent overview of how to structure an outline so that you can create a fun adventure for your friends. Yeah, what I was realizing about this is that, you know, these first, Basically, two and a quarter pages are just um, about one week of a middle school like English or language arts class. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do a quick Freytag pyramid. Okay, go. <laughs> right. Right. Um, that's that's kind of an amusing thing, but yes, like a new DMs absolutely do need more help on how to structure a story mm-hmm. and. You know what the sort of emotional arc of it needs to look like, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a good thing to have. Um, the the relative value of the examples is more sort of an open question. Um, but yeah, yeah. So we get into the first of the examples, which is Strange Renaissance, uh, which seems to mostly be about imagining. Um, someone with real leadership potential coming to the goblins and teaching them, uh, you know, to, to be civilized and have technology. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, we wouldn't write it that way now, but you know, right. okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not amazing. It's, it's okay. It's, it's not amazing, but it's a workable example. Yeah. Um, it it does use exactly the the story structure and the outline structure that they provide in the beginning of the chapter, which is the point of it. So I, I appreciate yep. that. It provides some subplots. Okay, um, you know it's it's just not a, a super duper awesome fantastic story, right? Right. Like my recollection of when I was reading this as a kid, it was just sort of. They lay all this out, but I'm still a little okay. How do I implement this? You mm-hmm. try to imagine me at about 13 here. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Go with me on this. Um, because understanding how to implement someone else's ideas and bring that to life is a skill that it took me most of my gaming career to date to start to mm-hmm. develop. And what this outline does not do is tell you that part of it, right? Right. Yeah. Um, just, I don't know why I struggle so much with getting my head around like implementing someone else's ideas, except that I feel like I have to store the whole idea in my head and recognize the importance of every moving part in order to start. It's probably mm-hmm. an anxiety thing. Let's be real. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, so then you get, you know, episode by episode breakdowns. That's fine. That's good. Right. And and it splits those episodes into what part of the story structure those are taking place in, yeah. which is which is a decent uh, way to use the outline, sort of. Um, it would help if the story was a little more interesting, <laughs> to be honest. It, it would, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I appreciate that they're putting this into episodes, right? They're not saying game session. They're saying episodes. And so, you know, what I would also appreciate is a little bit more advice on, hey, by the way, episode one here doesn't mean one game session. This could take place over three game sessions. And here's what you might need to flesh out in terms of details to get them from the beginning of this episode to the end of this episode. Uh, and it doesn't really do that. It's not yep. really giving DMing advice in that way. It's basically saying, here's how to create a very almost shallow outline of what might be your next, you know, year long campaign. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of text in here. There's a lot of text. And so for me, the problem with this example, regardless of whether it's a good, would be a good fun adventure or whatever, but it's the fact that it's so much text that they've written in each of these parts. And I'm not sure that's the best way to con convey to a new DM or an, an intermediate level DM that this is how you write out your outline. Like the whole point of an outline is you can use numbers and bullet points to convey information very quickly before you write out all this long form, full sentence structure description of what you think is going to happen. Like that's a problem for me that they, that it's presented this way. Sure. Cause it, I think it, it steals some of the thunder from the outline. It basically says here, write this whole story, which by the way, is in complete contrast to the best advice in DMGR1, which is don't plan the ending. Yep. Don't get married to the story that you're writing. Let the PCs have an effect on what's happening. And this outline, the way it's written, and the way it's yep. filled out, the way that it's described, doesn't leave room for that. Absolutely. And I think that that's an incredibly important point. I think that the the sort of writing tech of presenting adventure ideas has moved forward in these little fits and starts since this was published. But mm -hmm. uh, I really do feel like we have to keep relearning the same first lesson right? instead of yeah. being able to move forward sort of collectively mm -hmm. on how we're going to present enough of an idea for someone else to pick it up and run it with confidence. Right. Right. But I mean, th this is absolutely sort of wall of texty and that's mm -hmm. another part of why I probably bounced off of it as a, uh, you know, 13 or 14 year old. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the next example is carnival of the bazaar, which um, presenting a good creepy carnival is mm -hmm. hard. Right. And, this is trying to help, but uh, I think that much as with the first example, they get in the weeds a bit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they get in their own way a lot in, in this yeah. section. Um, I do like the fact that, that it presents an artifact, right? A new artifact. Yeah. 
Um, it directs you to the DMG rules about creating artifacts and the, and the rules around using an artifact. And then it presents the artifact to you. So I appreciate that they're trying to bring that back in. Like, hey, by the way, remember, there's a whole Dungeon Master's Guide for you to use when you're when you're planning your adventures and doing this, right? This is supplemental. The DMG is your first stop, right? Yep. Um, but yeah, then this example gets directly, uh, it goes in the same sort of direction as the next one. Or sorry, as the last one, um, with with all this long form prose about you know all these episodes and what the climax is and the denouement and the rewards and you know here's all these things that can happen and but yet it's not full of advice about well what if the PCs do this what if the players decide to go over here and what if it, you know all the things that are the actual difficult parts of DMing this does not address. So, um, but I agree with you. It's really tough to present a creepy carnival and do it well and yep. maintain the creepiness and maintain the sort of alien nature of the, of the carnival, you know, carnival geeks. Right. Yep. Um, and I, I'm not sure this presents it uh, that well to be honest um but mostly that's just because of the format again that the whole long prose format is exactly not what i would choose if i was actually writing up an adventure right i will absolutely recommend watching uh, the tv series carnival just make sure you turn it off before the last five minutes of the last episode <laughs> do okay. yourself a favor this is this is famous advice about this series. It isn't that it's bad; it's that it doesn't get a third season. Mm. Okay. The whole thing doesn't work if you don't get a third season. Oh, it's fine up until so. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I, mm, yeah, I have opinions. I, so haven't, many opinions. I haven't watched it, so I. Yeah. Um, like it has really good mysteries. Mm-hmm. And it's a very mineable uh, show. Yeah. Um, for just setting up a mystery and like having a really intriguing hook. Anyway, we don't have yeah. to keep going on that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, okay. So moving along to the end of uh, the well, yeah, so yeah, so so then it moves from from this big long form uh, example. Oh, it then it then moves to grave plots, which is really just sort of a two or three paragraph kind of plot ideas um right you know I, well like, i don't it, i don't think this section needs to be in this book it's almost like they said you know other than those two big examples let's provide a whole bunch of other ones but right like this this feels like filler um yeah. are a way of presenting hooks in a really grabby way like really barbing that hook um yeah has improved more than almost any other writing skill. And my evidence for this is that I'm working on my uh, Fizzbun's Treasury of Dragons breakdown, Mm -hmm. and there's tables and tables and tables of one to two sentence hooks in that book. Right. Well, let me give the audience an example. They're so good. Let me give the audience an example of one of the, what it talks about. It says, oh, so one, and again, very well laid out and with really obvious section headers. The section is called questing for spell components. 
Flipping through the player's handbook or Tome of Magic, it is apparent that many of the spells described there require scarce or valuable material spell components. Finding a rare component can be the, quote, hook that leads the PCs into an intriguing adventure. Remember, the material spell components can be found among the trappings of NPC spellcasters. Like, this set of paragraphs, it, go, it keeps going on. That does not need to be in this book. No. This, this like, is directly in the DMG and the player's handbook, both. It does not need to be in this book. They wasted a half a page on yeah, this. Uh, just a lot of these ideas are kind of goofy and unappealing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They're not going to help sustain the tone of your game unless what you want is something both goofy and unappealing. Right. Um, yeah. So th- they're not amazing. Um, so I don't feel a ton of yep. compulsion to delve into any of this. Yes, let's... Um, Let's <laughs> finally we get to the, the, the random encounter generator. The, there, there is there is one thing I want to mention. Oh, sure. That is that uh, it, it also has this ridiculous order uh, and organization. Um, it provides this this hook called vampire love. A vampire has fallen in love with one of the PCs. Right. Blah, blah, blah. And that's on page 65. However, on page 63, two full pages before that. There is the reluctant vampire. <laughs> and the first sense of this is this adventure is offshoot, an offshoot yeah. of vampire love. Well, then why is it in front of it? <laughs> like it's just, oh. just obviously poor decision there because the other thing is um, I think what they did was just put them in alphabetical order. Right. And that's why it's before but that right. has there. There's really no basis in why, well, <laughs> other than well, we decided to do alphabetical order. <laughs> well, I, I I mentioned this to you the other night, uh, in and such. But mm-hmm. it needs to be said, there is no credited editor editor in this book. Yes. So and I will and I will tell the audience because I'm going to leave that in because there is yeah. no editor. Uh, the, Every other of ones, so there are nine of these DMGR books. Okay, every single other of the eight other ones have an editor listed specifically, edited by blah blah blah. This has literally no editor, and and maybe someone got skipped in credits. That happens. I have been skipped in receiving editing credit in a book before, but yeah, 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 but. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so this chapter ends with what they're calling a random encounter generator. And I say what they're calling a random encounter generator because it's not a random encounter generator. It is a random NPC generator. And It has a bunch of tables. The tables are race. It's a 1D10 table. Occupation, a D100 table. Character class, a D6 table. NPC motivation, a D100. Okay. Which includes some interesting things. Uh, idle conversation, being mugged, begging for a drink, asking for a favor, being hassled by town guards. Okay. Uh, some of those are actionable. Fine. And then there's yep. really bad ones like curiosity and needs information like, duh. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so there's that. Then there's table five, the hated class. In other uh, also words. Also accidentally bumps into PCs is not a motivation. I just need right. to say that. Yes. Yes. I have right. to get that well, out. And, and also compliments PC for some reason, not a motivation, right? 
That's right. not a mo- loud argument, not a motivation. Like, yeah, none of the, the tables named wrong, but moving but on. <laughs> th- this is this is like what the P- NPC is doing right in the scene. That's what it should be, not motivation. Anyway, then yep. there's a hated class table, D12. Uh, a hated race table, D12. NPC- I love that the, the D12 table is six entries. Right. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't in include right. a significant number of the classes in the right. game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, remember, though, that uh, that these are. Yeah, that's true. It does split them out. Fighter, paladin, priest, ranger, thief, wizard. And it does. Yeah, there's no druid on. Anyway, uh, and then there's NPC, there's corpse, no bard. which is a which is a D100 table. Um, these actually are quirks. Um, sure. Yes. You know, owns a mean dog. Okay. I guess that's a quirk. <laughs> um <sighs> Is yeah. a bad dog owner. Sure. Fine. Yeah, sure. Um, tells bad jokes. All right. That's dresses inappropriately. Uh, so, excuse you. Yeah. Excuse <laughs> you. Table. <laughs> but that's, off me. that's, that's literally, that's literally the tables. Tell me that's a random encounter generator. That's not right. It's not, right. it's not a random encounter. So uh, again, it's almost like the last 10 pages of this entire chapter is just filler. Right. Uh-huh. A- after the two big examples. Right. So those examples uh, end on page uh, 59 and from 59 to 69. It's just filler. It's just literally things that I never need to look at again and probably did not enjoy looking at them the first time. Right. I think that is a painfully accurate assessment. Yeah. Uh, you know, and here's the thing. There are parts of the DMGR one that I feel like are not as useful to me. And maybe the advice is a little tiny misguided or just very much outdated by now or something like that. But I appreciate that entire book. This book so far, now we're on page 70. We're about to start chapter three. And uh, not only is a lot of it outdated, just in terms of, you know, they talk about going to your local library and doing research. So of course, I mean, that's not their fault, right? But just in terms of the way it reads, the way that they provide advice is very outdated. And the way that the um the way that they that they do the adventure design and all that is very, very outdated. Again, not their fault. They were writing in the times and that's fine. But the way it reads feels very out. You know, there are some things that you can read that were written a hundred years ago that don't actually feel outdated, right? Um, not a lot of them, a hundred years, right? But let's say twenty years. Some things you read that are ten years old that are really outdated, right? This yep. is one of those books. It's twenty-eight years old. It's very outdated. Yep. Um, and, and that does bring us to the end, rather thankfully, of chapter two. <laughs> uh, we're right about the. Actually, we're just past the halfway mark in the book. Yeah. Um, in those two chapters. Um, yeah, those two chapters are very long chapters. Yeah, yeah I, I will say that I'm excited about next episode because uh, things do get a little stronger in terms of just history of D&D and history of ideas developing mm-hmm. uh, as we move mm-hmm. into the next chapter. There's going to be some good stuff here that we will uh, we'll get to. Yeah, this episode is kind of the... Um the here's the 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 half of the book that's not that great (laughs) and then the next one is actually it improves vastly it's it's actually has some really good parts in it yep um 
And so I think that's going to bring us to the end then of this episode. So bear with us while we while we sort of end this episode and and hopefully you're still listening tomorrow when we talk about the um the actual good parts of this one. Um yep. so Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. Uh I write for tribality.com. Uh, my personal blog is brandisstoddard.com, and I also have a Patreon that is Brandis Stoddard. And Sam? I am DM Samuel on Twitter, and you can read my blog at rpgmusings.com, and I am all over the Tome Show, so you can join our Discord. If you need a link, just tweet at me, and I will tweet you a link to join that. There's a lot of a lot of good conversation goes on that Discord uh, occasionally. It's in fits and spurts. It's not so much information that you get lost in the shuffle. Um, but uh, what is there is good. So uh, I think that's going to bring us out. Yep. Folks, you got to keep wearing your masks. There's new variants yep. of COVID. This is stupid. Let's be yeah. done. Yep. Absolutely. And happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.